You know, I think we've all seen enough movies to know that there are some essential ingredients and components that are necessary if a story is going to be epic. For example, uh, there's, there's an important mission that has to be accomplished. In fact, the, the, the future of the world may depend on it, right? There's an ark to be dug up somewhere. There's a holy grail to be discovered. There's a pretty girl that has to be rescued. Maybe there's a city that has to be protected. Uh, there's an asteroid that has to be destroyed. Maybe it's someone's honor that has to be defended. But if you're going to have an epic story, if you're going to spin an epic story, somebody has to have an important mission that has to be accomplished. Second, there's a form of opposition that must be overcome. There's always a villain to be dealt with. There's an enemy lying in wait. There's a traitor that has to be flushed out and defeated. But you got to understand, to have, a bad, you got, to have an epic, you got to have a bad guy that's going to provide the tension for the story. You see, Superman needed Lex Luthor. Maybe you never thought about it that way. Batman needed his bane, see. Luke Skywalker, he needed Darth Vader. You got to have the bad guy to provide the tension. Third, there's a carefully thought through strategy that holds the highest probability of achieving the mission. Sometimes it's a complex, well-coordinated plan. Other times it might be a surprise attack, but there's always a strategy to fulfill the mission. And then fourth, there's a main character that wants to achieve his objective with a certain kind of style a certain kind of flair. In some epics, it's a James Bond-type character that's going to use a high-tech approach. Sometimes it's a full frontal assault, like in Taken. If you've ever seen Liam Neeson in those movies, you just know that by the end of the movies, all the bad guys are going to die. They're going to pay. They're going to be dealt with. Sometimes it is like in a Braveheart, a William Wallace who inspires the masses to do great things. But eventually, eventually, the villain is put in his place, the enemy is defeated, the pretty girl is rescued, the asteroid is destroyed, but it's pretty tough to spin a great epic without these essential ingredients. Well, this weekend, we're going to begin a new series that we're calling Epic. It's really God's story, and we're going to see over the next few weeks that all of these, all of these ingredients are right there in God's story. They, they, they unfold in the Bible, and the reason we're calling it God's story is because you're going to see not only is he the main character, he's the hero, he's the producer, he's the director, he's in, he's in charge of casting. In fact, we all play a role, but it's really not our story, it's God's story. Often we'll say things like, man, you've got to hear my story. We don't have a story. We just fit somewhere in God's story, and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. I want to begin our series uh, by looking at a verse that is very, very familiar to any of us who grew up in church, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. And you may not remember the verse, but you'll remember the picture that goes with the verse. Here, here's the picture. See, you remember that? That's, that's Jesus knocking at the door, right? We all remember that. Here's the verse that goes with it. It's found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says this. <clears throat> God says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Now, the context of this verse, this is something that's been written to a church, but there's an individual part to the verse. Notice the next part. If anyone, so there's the individual part. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and I think this is the surprise part. This is, you know, we're kind of expecting a fastball down the middle and we get a curveball on the corner, right? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, there's a lot of us, we would expect that part of the verse to say where Jesus says, if you'll open the door and let me in, I'm going to come in and straighten you out, right? We would expect that. Or I'm going to come in and we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting about how long you've made me wait out front on the porch, right? Or I'm going to come in and I'm going to convince you that you're a lousy, no good sinner. But this is what's amazing. And this is really the jumping off point for our series. This is what Jesus says in verse 20. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
In other words, Jesus says, we're just going to dine together. We're just going to hang out for a while, to which we respond, but what about the sin part? I know the sin part's a big part. Nothing here about the sin part. Jesus just says, if you ever get up the nerve to open the door and to let me into your life, we're going to eat together. We're going to hang out. We're just going to chill, which makes me think that artists got it wrong. The picture should probably look like this, right? I mean, Jesus, just let me in. And I'm not being disrespectful because you got to understand, in the first century, there was nothing more intimate that Jesus could tag onto the end of the verse than this idea of, I'm just going to come in and we're going to eat together. Basically, Jesus was saying this, I'm going to come out, come in, and we're just going to hang out. We're just going to spend some time together. To which we respond, yeah, Jesus, but I know you got an agenda. What else are you going to do? To which Jesus responds, nothing. We're just going to be together. And this is what I want you to begin to understand as we launch this new series this weekend. We have a heavenly father who simply desires to have a relationship with us. In other words, his, pri- his priority for our lives isn't to come in and beat us up. It's not to come in and begin to manipulate us or to change everything. It's not, here are 15 things that you need to stop doing, and here are 10 things that you need to start doing. This is God saying to us, if you will just open the door to your whole life, if you'll just open the door to every aspect of your life, your marriage, your relationships, your finances, your career, your schooling, if you will just do that, I am going to come in, and when I come in, all I want is a relationship. Now, The reality is all of us know what it's like to have God knock on the door of our heart. We know what it's like to sense that God is moving in our spirit and he's pressing us to change something. And and I think we all have different things that we yell at God when he's knocking at the door. For example, some of you, 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 you would yell, you can't come in right now, I'm just not presentable. Because we realize there are things going on in our life that God just would not approve of. And so we kind of have the attitude, when I get my act together, when I clean up my act, God, then I'm going to let you into my life. But right now, you just need to stay out on the front porch. Some of you might yell this, hey, God, come back when I'm older and life's not so much fun. See, some of you are thinking that right now. Come back when I'm older, God, and I don't have so many options. Others are, maybe this is what you're yelling. God, you can't come in right now, and the reason you can't come in is because, I'll tell you what, God, things are great right now. Wife is great, kids are great, marriage is great, family is great, job is great. God, and if I open the door now and let you into my life, you might mess things up, and things are going really great the way they are. But I'll tell you what, God, if things turn, if they start going badly, if things start going south, God, I promise you, I'll open the door, and I will invite you in to my life. I think we all have reasons that we want to keep God on the front porch of our lives. But this is what's interesting. At the same time, there's something deep down inside of all of us where we long for a relationship where we can be fully known and at the same time be fully accepted. We, we long, there's something in us, we long to be in a relationship where people can know our good side and our dark side. You know, Mark Twain's the one who said, we're all like the moon, we all have a dark side. We long to be in a relationship where someone can know our good points and all of our bad points, and there's still no fear of rejection. By the way, some of you listening right now, you know what it's like to be fully known. I mean, you were in a relationship, and you came clean. You dumped it all out, and the person that you dumped it on, they walked away, you know. 
And when they walked away, it was like it, it pulled the plug in your soul and you can just kind of feel yourself draining away and there's this, there's this void there. So you know what it means to be fully known. You just don't know what it means to be fully accepted. And maybe that describes your marriage this weekend. You remember taking those vows, standing at the altar and saying, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. But as you've been in this relationship, this marriage now, you're realizing that what your spouse really meant was, I'm all in. I'm committed as long as it works for me. I'm all in. I'm committed as long as I'm happy. I'm all in. I, I'm committed as long as, as long as you behave, as long as you don't screw up. See, you, in other words, you can't be fully known in that relationship because if you're fully known, you know you probably won't be fully accepted. And then I think there's some people here this weekend, and this probably describes me. Uh, you know, we kind of have this idea that... Um, I want to project an image, and, and I want that image to be projected, to, to, to be accepted. And we, we kind of live our lives that way. And, and, and deep down there's this fear, but if they really knew what I was like, would they really accept me? And so we spend a whole lot of time in, in, in image management. And because of that, we never experience relationship at the deepest level. And it's because we're afraid to take the risk of just putting ourselves out there and saying, here I am, warts and all. What are you going to do with it? And because we can never get to that place in our relationships, we struggle. But there is this desire in all of us to have a relationship where we are so loved, we never get to the point where we fear that the one who loves us would ever walk away from us and abandon us. And sometimes I think we're aware of it, sometimes we're not, but I promise you it is there. And it's there because we were created for relationship. And we were specifically created to be in a relationship with God. And God designed us with that need. And he also designed us in such a way that he is the only one who can actually meet that need. He's the only one who can plug that hole in our soul. And because he so wants that relationship, he never stops pursuing us. As we begin this new series, this is what I want you to see this weekend. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at a very familiar passage beginning in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, of course, we'll put the verses up on the side screen. Uh, you may want to check out your phone app. I know that Jason and all the campus pastors got you to go to the phone app. By the way, if you, if you had your phone out and you did not go to the phone app, basically uh, to, the, to the serve button, we have technology that tells us you love Satan more than you love Jesus. Anyway, so, uh, you know, we have your names and we know where you live. But anyway, here's, here's the verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is what it says. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But I want you to notice this next phrase. God blessed them. So God created them. And then right on the heels of God creating them, it says, God blessed them. Now here's the question. What have they done up to this point, Adam and Eve, to deserve to be blessed? Well, the answer is they haven't done anything. I mean, they're just like standing there in the garden. Wow, look at this. I've been created. Thank you, God. And God's like, now I'm going to bless you. 
And, and they're like, well, don't we need to do something if we're going to deserve to be blessed? God's like, nope, I'm, I'm just going to bless you. And then God gives them the same responsibility for the earth that he has for the universe. He says, I'm going to rule over the universe. I'll take care of the stars, the Milky Way. I'll take care of the planets. I got that under control. I want you guys to rule over the earth. And together, we're going to be a great team. And I think Adam and Eve are like, wow, what did we do to deserve that? And God's like, nothing. You did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Just do it. Now, here's the question. Why did God bless them when they hadn't done anything to deserve it? They hadn't done one thing to earn it. This is what we're going to learn in this series. God created mankind for relationship, in relationship with him. Let me say that again. God created mankind for relationship, in relationship with him. In other words, God didn't create mankind. He didn't create Adam and Eve outside of the relationship and then bring them into the relationship with himself once they had earned it and once they had deserved it. He created Adam and Eve in a relationship with himself. They were fully known by God and they were not afraid of rejection. And God, as we see in Genesis chapter one, he loved them so much that he blessed them before they did anything that warranted a blessing. And I'll tell you why. It's because when God looks at us, there's something in us. See, we were created in the image of God. There's something in us that reminds him of himself. We are his preeminent creation. We're the only part of his creation that was created in a relationship. We're the only part of his creation that was created in a way so that we can relate to him. He made us as much like himself as he possibly could. We were created for relationship in relationship. And he blesses us because he loves us regardless of what we have or haven't done. That was his goal at the very beginning and that is where he is taking us in the very end. In fact, when you, when you think of the Bible, think of it this way. The Bible is really nothing more than an epic love story where God is the main character. And he created mankind to be in a relationship with him. But see, mankind broke the trust. Mankind destroyed the intimacy. And the rest of the Bible is simply God working really, 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 really hard to put it all back together. Again, that is the epic story of the Bible. It is the story of redemption. It's about God doing everything within his power to restore relationship with the people that he created to have a relationship with. Now, why does he do that? And this is what we're going to learn this weekend. It's because deep in the heart of God, he doesn't just want rule keepers. Deep in the heart of God, he doesn't just want church people. He doesn't just want religious people. Deep in the heart of God, he wants a relationship where there is full disclosure and full acceptance. That's the context in which he created Adam and Eve. And God has never, ever changed that agenda. He continues to pursue it. In fact, I want you to go from the very, very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. I want you to just get a big handful of Bible, okay, and go all the way to the end of the Bible. Just grab the Bible, go to the end. If you get to the book of Concordance, you went just a little too far. Back up and you'll find to the left the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters. Find chapter 21. Let me give you the context. When you get to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, everything is over. It, it's, it's the end of the world as we know. I mean, that make, make a great song, right? But it is, it is the end of the world as we know it. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. Three days later, he came back to life to redeem the world. Eventually, it all comes to a head. 
there was, a, there was a big battle at Armageddon. Steve's sitting out here. I'm going to call Steve out every week. I got a little streak going here. I'll never forget when we were in Israel and we stood looking out over the valley of Megiddo and imagining what it would be like when this big war took place, this battle, this epic battle took place. So Armageddon, it's over. Satan has been defeated. Not only that, the earth has been destroyed. And when we get to Revelation chapter 21, God is going to put it all back together again the way he originally created the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Back when everything he created, he said, it is good. It is absolutely perfect. Now I want to show you something that just gives me chills. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And notice what John says, and there was no longer any sea. So John is writing this. Why would John add that little comment, there was no longer any sea? I'm not really sure, but this is what I speculate. You know, John, they tried to, they tried to kill him by, by burning him, boiling him in oil, and it didn't kill him. So as an apostle, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos. There's, that's where he lived out his days. That's where he died. And he's sitting on this island when God gives him the vision to write the book of Revelation. And he's been surrounded all these years by the ocean. He can't, he's got a little bit of, you know, he's, he's just stuck on this island. He's got island fever. So I think when he sees this new heaven coming down to earth, he says, there's no more sea. Thank God. I don't have to look at that sea anymore, right? So that's just my speculation. Do what you want to with it. He goes on to say this. I saw the holy city... The new Jerusalem, this is the new heaven, coming down out of heaven from God. Look at this beautiful illustration. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is Jesus speaking, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. In other words, God says, I am putting it all back together the way I originally intended it to be. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So think about this. After, century, after centuries, after thousands and thousands of years of history, after turmoil and chaos and wars and famine and disease and pestilence, God is going to destroy this old earth. And then he's going to put it all back together again. And he says, they will be my people. I will be with them. I will be their God. In other words, God is going to reestablish the context for relationship with his prized creation the way it was originally designed and created. But I want you to check out verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wow. Now see, when I read that, I thought, well, wait a second. I thought in heaven, because you know, that's where Christians go, right? I thought in heaven there was no death, no pain, no sorrow. Why would we have tears in our eyes? Now, again, this is speculation, but this is what I believe. I believe that there is going to be a time as followers of Jesus Christ where we accepted what he did for us on the cross and so that we could be reconciled back into a relationship with God and now we get to spend all eternity uh, with him. I think there's going to be that epic moment where we see God when the reality of what he has done for us hits us, the reality of the love that he has for us finally settles in and I think without meaning to, without planning it, I think we will automatically be re just moved with emotion. And I think that we'll have thoughts like, wow, I wish I'd have tried harder. I wish I would have lived better. I wish I would have done more. But see, even in that moment, God's not going to take the opportunity and say, I told you you should have done it my way. See what I did for you? That's not he says, I'm just going to reach out at that moment, and I'm just going to wipe the tears from your eye. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you felt comfortable enough with someone to allow them to reach out and just kind of brush a tear from your eye. 
I told you we have my oldest son and his wife and my grandkids are living with us right now to their house is finished in November. And, and Embry's our 10-month-old grandbaby. And boy, she's, a, she's like a saint. She rarely cries. But every once in a while she gets hungry or she just gets mad and she only wants Papa. By the way, she said her first word this weekend, it was Papa. I'm just telling you. But every once in a while she'll cry and they'll, they'll give her to Papa. And she does that little, you know, you know, just that little quivering going on. And she'll have those little tears that are just left sitting on those little chubby cheeks, right? And I just reach out. See? That's what God's going to do to us. That's what our moms did to us when we were children. That's what a husband and wife, that's what they do when somebody's heart is broken. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but that's how personal it is going to be. God says, man, we're moving into eternity. The party is starting, and I'm going to just wipe every tear from your eye. But what I want you to see is this. That's the picture of the kind of relationship that God desires to have with each one of us. It is that intimate. So you got to understand, when God is knocking on the door, What's on the other side of the door isn't a God who wants to just come in and mess with your relationships or mess with your uh, finances or mess with your job. It's not a God who wants to just come in and mess with your life. What's on the other side of the door is a God that loves you so much. Are you listening? He loves you so much, he just wants to be with you. It's about a relationship in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. It's about a relationship in the very end. And in between Genesis all the way to Revelation, God never changes his agenda. It's all about a relationship. Now, here's the problem. Most of us were raised in churches, and I don't think the church meant to do this, but we were raised in churches where we learned to substitute religion for having a relationship with God. And I'm going to pick on some churches here, and I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm speaking in generalities, but it's pretty accurate. For example, as I've said before, I grew up as a Baptist. And as a Baptist, I just naturally thought that God loved me when I was good, but he was ticked off at me when I was bad. Any Baptist here, you ever felt that way, right? So I'll tell you how literally I took that. We lived on Southgate Street, and I told you we were poor, and we had one of these front yards that was level, but then it dipped. And so in the backyard, if you went out the kitchen door, we had a really high staircase that went down to the backyard. And we were poor, and it was never really, it was kind of rickety and would shake a little bit. When I stole a piece of gum, or took a quarter out of my mom's purse without asking, when I knew I had done something wrong, if I wanted to go in the backyard, I would not go down those steps. Because I thought that's a perfect opportunity for God to get me. Those steps, they could collapse, break my neck, you know? So if I wanted to go to the backyard, I would go out the front door and walk all the way around the house. I'm like, God, if you want me, I'm not just going to give you an opportunity. You're going to have to come after me, right? I just assumed that if I'd done something wrong, God was going to get me. So to me, having a relationship with God was all about staying on his good side. And the way you did that as a Baptist, right, you constantly rededicated your life. In other words, you go to church, maybe you sin during the week, you did something to screw up, you feel guilty. At the end of the service, we had what we called altar call, and there was a verse like, you know, softly and tenderly, gee, oh man, it was just, oh man, I'm so bad. Or just as I am, you know. Or here's the one that would really get me. I surrender, oh, oh no, I don't, oh man. And so I would go down front, and I would recommit, and I would rededicate, and I would re-promise that I'm gonna do better, and I would leave, and I would try harder, and I would fail, and so the next week I'd go back and rededicate again because obviously the first one didn't take but my whole relationship with God was about confessing sin 
trying harder to stay on his good side so that I didn't get zapped. I thought that's what God wanted. And I think God must have been sitting in heaven saying, I am getting dizzy watching you go up and down that aisle, man. Stand still. Sit down. I just want to hang out with you. I just want to get to know you. I just want to spend some time with you. Got any Methodists here? Anybody grow up Methodist? Got a few. I got some good Methodist friends, especially at the gym. Do you know what they do? You know what Methodists do? For the most part, they stay really, really busy helping other people. They feed the poor, you know. They build houses for habitat. In other words, they're very socially active, very socially responsible, which is great. We could all learn a lot from the Methodists, right? But if I get in a conversation with them and I start pressing them about their relationship with God, you know what they do? They tell me stories about building houses. They tell me stories about feeding the poor. And they substitute what God so desperately wants for them, just a relationship, they substitute the relationship with doing a lot of good stuff. Not all Methodists, not all Methodists, but in general, this is pretty true. I have some charismatic friends. And many of them, not all of them, they just want to feel something. If you ask them, how's your relationship with God? They'll tell you about some service that they attended. They'll tell you about something they felt or something they experienced or some gift they got that you need to get to. But it really is kind of about experiencing something. Hope's kind of a weird church. We have a lot of Catholics here. In fact, we have more Catholics here at Hope than any other group, and I don't get it. I mean, I've only been to one mass in my life. One time when I was coming home from the Central African Republic, we left there at midnight. We landed in Paris at 7 in the morning. Uh, Carl and I were there. We had all day until we flew out, so we decided to get on the train and go into Paris, and we, we got dumped out right at the Notre Dame Cathedral on a Sunday morning. And Carl grew up Catholic, and he said, let's go to Mass. And I'm like, why not, you know? So we went, and we sat down. Carl got up, went somewhere for a while, came back. I don't know what he was up to, but, you know, we were sitting there, you know. There is absolutely nothing at Hope that even remotely resembles the Mass that I went to. Nothing. I'm not sure why you're here. I'm glad you're here, right? Well, let's be honest. If you grew up Catholic, you know you can hide behind Mary, you can hide behind the Pope, you can hide behind your favorite saint, you can hide behind confession and saying the rosary. You can spend years and years doing all kinds of religious stuff, all kinds of good stuff, and you can totally miss having a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And that's not every Catholic, but there's a culture there, just like there is in every segment of religion. Do we have any Episcopalians here? Anybody come out of an Episcopal? Yeah, go ahead. I don't have a clue what your gig is. I have never figured you guys out. <laughs> My point is this. We can spend our, our, our entire lives doing some incredible religious stuff and miss God. Because God's goal is not to make us into good church people. It's not to make us into good religious people. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know what it's like to experience acceptance at the deepest level. He wants us to experience a relationship with him like we didn't even know was possible. But I'm telling you, as long as we keep substituting religion for relationship, we're going to miss him. And right now, some of you are thinking, Mike, you're not giving us the whole picture. Because I've been around church long enough to know that there are a lot of do's and don'ts in the Bible. And there are a lot of things. If you do this, you're going to pay this price. And there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of regulations. This is what I want you to understand this weekend. All of the do's and don'ts, 
They're presented within the context of a relationship with God. You see, God knows that if you are in a relationship with him, it is going to change your life. And so there are rules and there are do's and there are don'ts and there are watch outs and there are principles. And he said, hey, here's some marriage things that you should know. Here's some moral things that you should know. But you got to understand, it's all within the context of God saying, I will accept you just as you are, even if you never apply any of it. I will accept you just as you are, even if you go in the opposite direction. You don't need to be afraid of me because I am going to accept you warts and all. And it's because when my son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sin, he removed the sin issue from between us. Your past sins, your present sins, even your future sins, not an issue anymore. You don't need to run away. You don't need to hide. You don't need to be afraid of me. You know, it's interesting. You see this all the time in the life of Jesus. One day Jesus was walking along and he looked up in a sycamore tree. Who did he see? Okay, the two people that went to Sunday school. Let's try this again. Who did he see up in the sycamore tree? Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Remember that? A wee little man. That's probably not politically correct anymore, right? But he's a little dude, right? He climbed up in the, see, I know the motion is, for the Lord he wanted. See, I got it all down. Very religious. So Jesus is walking and he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Now understand, everybody hated Zacchaeus. I don't know, maybe he did have the short man syndrome. But everybody thought he was obnoxious. He was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was a traitor. He was, he was collecting taxes from his own people, the Jews, and giving it to the Romans. He hung out with prostitutes. Nobody liked him. But Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus is like, where are we going? Jesus, to your house. What are we going to do? We're going to eat. We're just going to hang out. And if you know the story, when the meal was over, Zacchaeus walked out a changed man. Another time Jesus was moving around, he has his disciples with him, he's got his gang with him, and he sees Matthew. Matthew's collecting taxes, another tax collector. Everybody hates tax collectors. Hey, Matthew, want to hang out with me and the boys? And the boys are like, we don't want to hang out with that dirtbag Jesus. He's a tax collector. But Jesus, come on, man, hang out with us. And they go to Matthew's house, and they have a meal. And he walks out a changed man. You see, that's Jesus' way. I, I just want to eat. I just want to hang out with you. Yeah, th- there, there are some things that need to change, but that's not first on the agenda. Jesus, I just want you to experience what your soul longs for. I want you to experience what it means to be known and not rejected. I want you to experience being known with no fear whatsoever. Now, this is what you're going to have to begin to understand in this series. Being in a relationship with Jesus will change your life but it's a byproduct it is impossible to be with Jesus and not change now I have some homework for you and uh, this is going to be this is going to be hard for some of you but this week at some time I want you to just get along with God if you have a quiet time this is not your quiet time okay I want you just to get along with God you can't read anything You can't quote anything. You can't chant anything. You can't pray the Lord's Prayer. You can't say say the rosary. You can't even confess anything. Just get alone and say these words, God, 
I come to you just as I am. I'm not going to promise you anything. I'm not going to confess anything. I'm not going to quote anything. God, I just want to know you. I just want you to begin to plug the hole in my soul that just so long longs to be known without the fear of rejection. Now, for many of you, maybe most of us, this is going to be brand new. And if it's scary or seems a little irreverent, it's, it's because see, you, you still don't understand who's on the other side of the door. You, you don't understand his agenda for your life. It's not to crush you. It's not to break you down. It's not to manipulate you. It's not to even get you to do a lot of stuff. He just wants to know you, and he wants you to know him because this is what he knows. He knows this, just like with Zacchaeus, just like with Matthew. He knows if he can ever get in the house with you. He knows that if you can ever experience that kind of encounter, well, changing your behavior, that's going to be pretty easy. But I'm telling you, if you get the cart before the horse and, and your whole Christian life is about working, doing, religion, trying to be better, trying to please God, if you get the cart before the horse, you're going to spend a lot of frustrated years. And eventually you're going to say, you know what? Christianity doesn't work. I tried it. And the whole time Jesus was just kind of on the other side of the door saying, just let me in. I just want to know you. <laughs> I, I just want to be with you. Can we just get through all of the religious stuff? And can we just have a relationship? And it's because Jesus knows that there's nothing more transformational, transformational than simply his presence in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we... This, this almost sounds heretical for some of us because our whole life we've spent doing, striving, trying our best somehow to win your favor, get on your good side, earn something, deserve something. And Father, all along you're like, can we just spend some time together? Because, Father, you know that if we can just spend some time together, well, all the other things, they're going to start to take care of themselves. And there's just something about being in your presence. Like Isaiah, when he was caught up into your presence, immediately says, man, I, I gotta, I'm a man of unclean lips. i got a potty mouth. i got to do something about that. There's just something about being in your presence, Father. Those things begin to take care of themselves. But it's so hard for us to have the relationship with you because there's so many barriers and so many layers of religion and do's and don'ts and hoops that we have to jump through. We, we don't even feel like we can get to you. So, Father, help us realize right now you're knocking. And right now we have to decide what we're going to do. Because for many of us, scary to say, but maybe most of us, there have been years of religion and rules and regulation and very, 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 very little relationship. So, Father, I want to, I want to stop. I want to thank you uh, just for never, ever giving up on us. 
I, 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 I want to thank you for those times when you just simply wanted a relationship and we were so busy doing so many other things, but you'd never, you'd never, you'd never cease being in hot pursuit of us. I just want to thank you for being unstoppable in your love for us. And Father, I pray for those individuals right now who are listening who would have to admit, you know, I don't know if I've ever had a relationship. I'm not so sure it hasn't always been about doing and being and striving and working. It's been all about me and what I can do to impress God and to win him over. And Father, all along you've been saying, I've taken care of that with my son, Jesus Christ. He's already died for you. You have to accept him and we'll go from there. Help us understand, Father, there's nothing we could do that could ever earn your favor. Buy our way back into a relationship. It's only through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray for those right now who have never gotten to that point. They would realize that that's where the relationship begins. By simply coming to God and saying, there's nothing I can do to earn your favor. There's nothing I can do to buy your salvation. I can never be good enough on my own. So I simply accept the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. I want to spend some time with you. Blow our minds, God. Change our hearts. Reorder our lives. In your name we pray. Thank you.